0: It's not that we don't have a seat at the table; it's that there's no. It's that there's a table
1: at all. Exactly, and it's also that idea that you can make it into the table and play the game without even realizing that you're the one being played. And oftentimes that at the expense of the people that like you pretend you're representing or like you're speaking for in some ways. <music>
2: I'm Melissa, and I'm Brendan. Welcome to Zora's Daughters Podcast, where we define real world issues and empower our listeners to join in academic and anthropological conversations with a Black feminist lens.
0: Today, we'll be talking about silencing, the invisibility and hyper visibility of being a Black woman and institutional whisper networks. Plus, we have an exciting first, a guest. So we'll be speaking with a PhD student in African Studies and Anthropology at Harvard University later on in the episode.
2: But before we get started, we want to give a huge thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Mayada, my girl, um, look forward to living all for you in the future. Um, and Lachelle, uh, who is my aunt, uh, love you so much. Devian, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Darva, Ms. B, love you. Ryan and Allison, thank you so much for donating to the podcast. Uh, your support is invaluable. And if you would like to donate, you can donate by visiting our website, Zora'sDaughters.com or through the link bit.ly slash support ZDP on our Instagram. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Of course, in these challenging times,
0: we want you to put you and yours first, so we are also big fans of non-monetary support, and that can look like a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Zora's Daughters on Instagram, and Zora's underscore daughters, as Brendan likes to say, <laughs> on Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> or it can be sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Actually, a friend of mine, well, not a friend of mine, but a friend of mine's friend, she wants to drop some links to some articles about race after some shady comments in a group chat. And then she just left the group chat. So we appreciate that energy too.
2: Yes. Share it, share us with your friends. You're like, Oh, you need some education. Here's, here's a little podcast. Here's some yeah. women doing the work here. Those, those want to be
0: allies. Just, just shoot them a link. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And we're thinking about having an end of the semester, end of the semester zoom with all of our supporters. So people who have donated and shared, um, talked about us on social media. So let us know if that's something that you would be interested in because you know we would love to meet you all e yes. meet as we can.
2: Man. I'm excited for that actually. Um
0: <laughs> I think it'd be dope.
2: <laughs> it, it could be we could like sit around and sip some some wine or you know, some Hennessy if that's what you're into. Um yeah. I mean that's what I'm into. So anyway. <laughs> um, it can also be juice or water. <laughs> Juice or water, you know, I'll, yeah, if that's again yeah, for the
0: teetotals out there it's,
2: for it's y'all. Fine. Um, and if you also like tea, that's also fine too. I do, I sip tea and I spill it. That's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alyssa, um, since we like to start out with a question, I feel like each podcast, I thought that I would bring the question this week. And I saw this prompt on Twitter that I thought would be good for us to talk about. So, uh, at sugenia she asked um and she said that she was inspired by christina sharp she said what would be inside your ideal care package from a friend or well-wisher
0: oh that's a good one that's a good one i've actually gotten two care packages over quarantine i feel so loved and so blessed mm, yeah. to have such thoughtful friends you are <laughs> though
2: that's, <I> mean, <laughs> that's true
0: <laughs> so yeah shout out to y'all um but if we're thinking big, I think my care package is going to come in the form of an in-home massage therapist who won't try to have a conversation with me because I hate when you're trying to just relax and they're just, oh, how's, you know, how's your week been? And I'm like, leave me alone. No, I, <laughs> I'm just trying to enjoy look, the massage. i had a
2: massage therapist <laughs> go on about how she wished she had my body, but I feel like that's a... Uh, We could move to the that's for the word of the word of of something else. Um,
0: But yeah. Oh Lordy! So yeah. (laughs) So uh, in home. (laughs) So yeah, in home massage therapist. No conversations. Um, And that massage therapist would be holding a bottle of Pinot Noir, some crispy French fries, and aromatherapy candles, all of which I would enjoy to the soothing sounds of cello and piano interpretations of movie soundtracks but I guess that would be from like a very special friend but you know the way to my romantic and platonic heart is good wine food and relaxing music so yeah that's the way to go
2: <laughs> How oh, about man. you? now now our listeners have the keys if y'all <laughs> want to be Melissa's heart um some wine some food some music and a back rub there it is um <laughs> A professional one. Some <laughs> people,
0: some people, y'all ain't got the skills, you know. No, You don't have,
2: you know. We're not doing no no pats on the back over here. Um, yes, that's so funny. I yeah, this quarantine, I feel like I've gotten a couple of care packages. To my mom and my aunt sent me more food than I think I could ever eat. One of the things they sent me was a um, what was it ten pound bag of pancake mix for those days when I really need to eat pancakes. Wow. Um, and I'm so thankful. Thank you again. Like My partner and I, we are still tackling the cans of food because uh, there was just so much food. My mom and my aunt really tried to take care of me. Uh, and I also got a care package from one of our friends in common, hey, girl, uh, for my hey. birthday. <laughs> Thank you so much. She put me on to this hand cream. Uh, it smells like cake, and I- Yes every time i wear it's so it. nice <laughs> and it's luxurious i'm like thank thank you for putting me on um <laughs> i love the way it smells and with all the hand washing that
0: we're doing in quarantine it just it was literally it hits like, the spot you know like, it hits the spot and the spots are cracks
2: <laughs> yes and it stays in my purse it has not left my purse i'm running low um and now i'm like i gotta buy it i gotta find <laughs> find it somewhere i think it's in target but Anyway, thank you so much. Um, but my ideal care package at this stage of quarantine would definitely be some chocolates with caramel, but no peanuts. Mm. Uh, so like, I I don't have peanut allergy, but I just don't like peanuts. Right. And, you know, so if you're thinking about in the Snickers family, I love Snickers almond. It's like my thing, but not the regular <laughs> Snickers a book that's penned by a black woman author. I'm trying to expand my little shelf, you know, my little, mm-hmm. um, and a card with some affirmations. I have like a, a rainy day folder that I keep all my cards in for when I'm feeling particularly depressed and that I read right. through, remind myself that people love me and, mm-hmm. um, a pressed flower or a leaf for my journal collection. I have a few pressed flowers in there um and some paper mate flare pens. i don't know if you use those pens, but those are the pens no. i like, in class so those are the pens that i have in class i don't know if you ever noticed that i write with you like, use different colors I've yeah noticed. yeah it's like little <laughs> they like little markers i love them um i have so many of them but i always want more um and so in addition to all of that i mean honestly money is always king or queen or you know whatever <laughs> like It doesn't hurt. I just, it doesn't hurt. I'm still settling into this like new spot. There's a couple of more things I want to buy. So if it's like somebody wants to send me some money, I'm always happy about that.
0: So, so two things. So (laughs) our, the same mutual friend who put you onto the hand cream, she is for some reason really lucky and finds a lot of four leaf clovers. And she told me this when I met her and, you know, in this class that we were taking last year. And I was like, "Yeah, okay, sure." And she's like, "No, I have so many of them." So she just brought me four leaf clovers, and I actually have one pressed in uh, in my like tiny little notebook where I where I make my little jottings.
2: Aww.
0: So I, I think that's really cool. And then you always like these different things like almond snickers and then you've got the white cheddar cheetos you can't just have no regular <laughs> ass cheetos you gotta have
2: the white oh, cheddar one. yes y'all Alyssa <laughs> sent me white cheddar a huge box of white cheddar cheetos it was like 36 little mini bags in there and when i tell you the joy that i felt in my spirit when i opened <laughs> that box and saw all those bags and then when i finished (laughs) it was like 36 bags y'all i literally ate i probably ate like two bags of cheetos a day and (laughs) they were little they're little
0: snack ones though so you know they were
2: but it's you know whatever it's quarantine i did what i did to to survive (laughs) i had to do what i had to do to survive and so (laughs) i um finished those in like 20 days or something like that because i also had found bigger bags of Cheetos too so (laughs) anyway there's I need to have like special stuff basically I I can't I I can't
0: imagine how big that box must have been like when it showed up on your doorstep because I know I was like hey there's a package coming for your birthday you're probably like oh okay she probably got me something little then it was probably this
2: like enormous box like it was huge it was like (laughs) probably three feet by two feet Oh geez! Yeah, it was like a huge box, <laughs> and it, and then you opened it, and it was like a huge blue bag that everything was in. It was like a gift bag. Oh, I'm nice. like, on Amazon. I did. I did the gift. I went for the gift wraps. Oh, I was that's how kind of they gift I did, This huge blue bag. <laughs> I still have the bag. Um, and it was just Cheetos, and I was just like, yes. Amazing. It speaks to my Taurus Venus. <laughs> the food, the luxury of it all. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm with it. And yeah. thank you. I mean, I feel like I thanked you so much, but I'm thank you again. Like, you no, blessed me. Just knowing me. you
0: enjoyed it, was, you know, <laughs> is, uh, is is thank you enough. I really, I like giving gifts and being thoughtful in those kinds of ways and, like, hearing and listening to things that people don't necessarily think that you're listening to. So that's that's kind of my little joy. Oh, um, yeah. that's your love
2: language, <laughs> gift giving. Oh, it's That's not a- actually, it's not. Oh. I wouldn't say that it
0: is. Um, I do enjoy it. You know, people say, I heard someone say that like love languages are what you, what you were lacking in your childhood or something like that. Mm. And um, no gifts were a big thing that was in my family. We just, you know, that was Christmas birthdays, you know, despite, or regardless of how much money my mom did or didn't have, you know, she would always have some stuff under the tree or some stuff for us for our birthdays. So I guess in a way it is a love language, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Y'all don't listen to me. It's fine.
2: It's <laughs> fine. I, I realized that as a multidimensional person, all of the love languages speak to me. Yeah. And you know, I mean, that's such a Gemini thing to say. And so I feel <laughs> like, I feel like, yeah, I. I'm good at giving gifts, but I'm also not good at it. If, if that makes any sense, it doesn't, matter. but like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, Oh yeah. If you tell me that you want something, I'll get it for you. Or if it's like, if it's like obvious that it's something that you want, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is for you. But if right. I like have no clue, I will just put money in an envelope or a gift card and be like, here you go. I mean, yeah. My- here you go have have the freedom and i mean money money is uh
0: you know money is it's fungible Learned that word last week (laughs) fungible um you know i was i was just reading i'm actually reading girl woman other um by Bernadine Evaristo, and in it one of the characters says that her godparents stopped giving her money after she turned 16 and she was like what i don't have financial needs After 16 years old, that doesn't make any sense. But actually, I need that money more now than I did when I was a child. So y'all need to do that. Y'all need to go back. Let's just roll things back, you know?
2: (laughs) Please. I mean, I think about all the money I I probably... I didn't waste it as a child because, you know, you have experiences. The money was there. But it's like Mm -hmm. if I had thought about the future and the bills that I would have to pay now, I probably would have put a dollar or two away. From each gift, but I still get money sometimes from like, mm. family members or, you know, sometimes people will bless me with money and I'm really appreciative of that because life is hard out here for grad students. We, yeah,
0: no, we I, th- I definitely get some money from my grandmother as well. And I did want to say, I wanted to also add on the note of the care packages that my mom did actually, she sent me three so my mom is a nurse in Canada where they have plenty of PPE.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so my mom has been sending me envelopes and envelopes of, but like the big envelopes of masks. And then in the first package, she sent me a few gloves and a thermometer. So I, so every time people come over, I like, I take their temperature. But she gave me these little, um, they're, they're like sanitary things that you wrap them in and then you discard mm-hmm. them. So don't worry, guys, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not, uh, you know, spreading, spreading anything uh, through that. That's so, great. Those are yeah, great goods. So, so that's good. And I just asked her for um, for some stuff. Ah, I can't say because it's a surprise for Bay. One of the things that I asked her to send for me. Ooh. But it's something mm-hmm. that you cannot get here in the U.S. and is only produced in Canada.
2: Oh, I was going to make a joke and be like, oh, universal health care, but it's not only in Canada. Mm-hmm yeah well <laughs> there's definitely uh, that so yeah so y'all why don't you uh so
0: everyone who's listening why don't you hit us up let us know on twitter or instagram what would be inside your ideal care package okay so Move it to our first segment
2: yes Alyssa, what is the word for this week
0: so our word for today is fetishization Another word that I'm probably going to mispronounce a lot. I'm going (laughs) to jumble it up a little bit. But yeah, so where where do we start with this word? My inclination was to go straight to Marx. Mine too. But then I was like, wait, maybe we should start with Freud. (laughs) But I think that it's probably best to start with anthropology or the anthropological
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: it was actually the Portuguese that developed this concept of the fetish. And I'm going to try to pronounce the word in, in Portuguese, um, fechisu. And so that was the word that they used to describe objects used in the religious practices of indigenous West Africans. And so then in the 18th century, a couple of white philosophers, they popularized the term Auguste Comte. He used it as he called like fetish, fetish, the fetish or fetishism he said that was the most primitive stage in his theory of the evolution of religion. And so this kind of made me think of like Durkheim's, the elementary forms of, of religious life, but I don't want to get too <laughs> too much into the weeds. But yeah. People are always out here trying to find like, what is the most primitive stage and how have we evolved to where we are now in this modern civilization. And so Coen, Coen was thinking about that in terms of, um, in terms of religion. So anthropologists, now have kind of come to understand the fetish as the attribution of religious or mystical qualities to some inanimate object. So the origins of the words, the way that like the Portuguese and these white male philosophers were using it, it was to was to talk about imbuing something with powers, particularly in a way that's mm. arbitrary. So of course that was part of like the 18th century colonial delusion, that africans are incapable of abstract thinking so it's just simply irrational that they that like these um, that these objects these fetishes would have any kind of power but like rational when a, when holy water has power is it or like when a crucifix has power so those are actually examples of fetishes and anthropologists would would today categorize them as such
2: right well, I mean, everything is wrong when it's not you doing it. So, uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, that's not the end right there. Yeah. So after right. <laughs> after this initial, you know, conceptualization of the fetish, which I had no idea, the Portuguese, I mean, you know, they did, we could credit them with starting slavery. So I guess we could <laughs> credit them with developing this concept of the fetish and of mm-hmm. course, in its connection to West Africans but what a lot of academics think about when we think about the fetish uh, is Marx. And Marx had this idea of the commodity fetish. And so we're not gonna get into capital, his landmark thing that people say started a revolution, but we are going to talk about the commodity as a a fetish um, in the sense that it has been endowed with some kind of value, that it has power, for and often over humans. So when someone speaks of the commodity fetish it means that all of the human involvement and social relationships that go into creating objects are hidden from our perception of them. And this is based on the idea that objects have no intrinsic value until they are given that value. So for example when we think about all these things that we purchase or we Mm -hmm. want in life Right, there are a lot of work that goes into that that we don't necessarily see that doesn't necessarily give it value right what gives it value is whoever the seller is saying the price is for so the price exactly. kind of shows the value of the object so that masks all of the exploitation a lot of the times right mm-hmm. that goes into making this object and so one popular thing that <laughs> you know i have so much of because you know let's be real i'm i'm an apple girl i'm an apple girl right? i am not but like, <laughs> <laughs> but like branding branding is kind of the i don't know what do you say 20th century I, don't, I feel like brands have been around for a while but like Probably branding even is, before that. Yeah, like, you know, when people were able to print stuff, maybe that's when brands started being a thing. But like branding is a great example of capitalizing on the idea of the commodity fetish, right? So people don't buy Apple products because they're inherently better than other brands, right? This obsession mm-hmm. every September about what's coming out on the iPhone or the iPad or, you know, the iMac or what or the Apple Watch, whatever isn't because these are things are are automatically better than anything else it's like the value that we have assigned to these things and also the value that society has assigned so there's there's mm-hmm. a class marker that comes with that right there's all these meanings that come with having apple like if i have an apple phone versus you know a bug phone which is i mean even that name right bug phone right Uh-oh. what's a bug phone <laughs> <laughs> oh a bug phone is like is that another word for android no, because Androids. Though so I don't think all Androids are bug phones, but hmm. all bug phones are Androids. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, like they're like the. Now we're getting that, too much into philosophy. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> like the like I don't know. I guess people call them like pejoratively. would call them like the Obama phones, like the senior citizen phones. <laughs> At the brick phones, like a Nokia. Yes, yes. Okay. The ones that last through See, years this and is years telling me that
0: we are from a different <laughs> we're from a vaguely different generation. <laughs> because I'm like, oh yeah, the Nokia phones back in the day, like having a Motorola that was fire. Yeah. I had the baby blue Motorola peanut phone. Y'all you don't do. know about that. <laughs>
2: I have no idea what that is. My grandma had the Nokia phone for years and the only game she had on it was Snake. Yeah and <laughs> I dropped that shit in a puddle and it still worked after I picked it up. Like it was, Oh, well, grandma, if you hear this, I'm sorry, girl, but I dropped your phone about 15 years ago in a puddle. Um, but it still worked. And that's, so that's when I think of bug phones. Like that's what I think about, but like there are certain hmm. associations that we have with that phone that has nothing to do with the thing, the phone itself, right? It has exactly. all these things to do with capitalism and the way that we're taught that things have value and they, in turn, make us valuable by having them and give us status by having them. But we're going to get to, we're going to get to that a little later.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, another, another way to explain the way that like social relationships are hidden is there are children who have to, who have to mine the iron Mm -hmm. ore Mm -hmm. in Sierra Leone, I think. And they are the ones who are like, who are finding the right materials in order to make these like tiny microchips and all of these things. So there's that kind of labor. If you think about a Fendi purse, it says made in Italy, but it's made in Italy by often Chinese undocumented workers in sweatshops. And so these kinds of labors end up being obscured by this brand and it being made by these people and it being sold by Fendi and being authentically Fendi makes it worth more so It Mm -hmm. might cost them a dollar to make this purse, but actually, but then you spend $5,000 on it. And it's only because they slap that name on it. And it's similar. I don't, my friend has put me on to Sephora and just returning things to Sephora. And I was like, wow, I can't believe you just do that. And she was like, listen, it costs them 50 cents to make these things and they sell it to us for $35. And I was Mm -hmm. like, you know what? Go you.
2: (laughs) I'm on board. I'm on board. It's like- I have two comments to make. So also in addition to thinking about like the labor that goes into it, right? we think about these people who are who are positioned at the bottom of a societal totem pole that make these really mm-hmm. valuable things that are markers for people who are at the top. And so it's like these things that we really value, like hand-woven purses, or it's like mm-hmm. it's handmade, so that makes it really valuable. And it's like, but actually no one is really And the thing about capitalism is, like, you never really actually get the money or the thing in exchange that's actually up to the value of your labor for it, right? There's always going to be a devaluation of your labor, Mm -hmm. Um, and in in particular with these people, right? It's not just a devaluation of their labor, but it's a devaluation of of their personhood. And so, want that thing, and then also... I used to be this person who was like, oh, I never steal from stores. Okay, and I still don't steal because mm-hmm. I'm really bad at it. But like, <laughs> I don't knock people who have to steal from stores in order to get yeah. the things they need or they want because it's like, honestly, these these stores steal from us. Like like you said, like this stuff yeah. does not cost that much to make or to have. Um, and it doesn't make anybody any less of a good person if they have to like steal things from the store. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I have a friend yes. who like, Takes the stuff from Sephora, scoops it out of the thing, <laughs> scoops it out. And it's like, here you go. Like <laughs> You can take this empty canister back um, because I and this puts it in different containers. And one day when I am brave enough to do that, I will. I just I don't know what it is. I just I guess it's my Christian upbringing that just, yeah from actually really taking down the system. But yeah, neither here nor yeah. there. All
0: right, well, we're getting a little, <laughs> we're going a little off track. But yeah, you were going to talk about the Freudian fetish since you're so into the psychoanalysis.
2: Yes, my boy, my boy, <laughs> Freud. So Freud, in 1927, he wrote an essay uh, called Fetishism, where he argues that the fetish is a penis substitute and, always, always something to do. With I the mean, penis. because Freud was probably gay, um, and so everything was related to a penis for him. Um, and this concept <laughs> of the fetish, really, but what's important to know from that, you know, is that the concept of the fetish has its roots in substitution. So, in both cases, if we're thinking about the capitalist definition, which is the commodity fetishism, or the psychoanalytic. Fetishism, right? We're thinking about the concealment of social relations at, that allows for us to substitute this iPhone for a class marker, right? Or like yeah. one thing to be substituted for another, but all of those power relations are kind of built into that relationship in and of itself with the commodity.
0: That's a little bit of the genealogy of the concept of, of the fetish, but put simply, Fetishizing is when you project qualities or values onto something or someone that it doesn't have. So, of course, what we really want to talk about is the fetishization of people, particularly Mm -hmm. racialized women. And so in this instance, you substitute a person's race or certain characteristics associated with race with stereotypical ideas about what those characteristics mean. So when a white man says, I have a thing for Asian women it's often because they have some kind of preconceived idea about what asian women will be like or what they're supposed to be like and so then of course the retort to be like oh you're fetishizing me or you're fetishizing x group of women is to say yeah it's just a preference but it's like your preference is based on making one body substitutable with another and then projecting your own racialized fantasies onto them
2: mm-hmm. and
0: that's racism
2: period <laughs> like, on parade
0: yeah. Yes, like you're not sexualizing a characteristic like long legs, for example. You're sexualizing a part of someone's racial identity. And so when your preferences involve imposing meanings that you associate with race onto people that you don't know, that's racist. That's racism.
2: That's racism. Yeah, people do this with mixed-race children, right? Oh my
0: goodness, do they ever?
2: There's fetish, right, around whether... You know, oh, I want to mate with this person. I know I'm using scientific language when I say that, but basically, you know, I want to mate with this person to produce this kind of, you know, bing, bam, boom, child with green eyes and curly hair. And it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe, but there's, there's a lot of concealed social relations beyond the statement of, I want a child that looks like this. And you also get these people who are like, oh, that's going to be
0: the solution to racism. Is like interracial mixed-race families. And that is, again, fetishizing something. So you are fetishizing the mixed-race child as some, a thing, actually you're thingifying, you're objectifying. You are fetishizing them as something that will, that will be a solution to racism, anti-blackness, and white supremacist violence. And that in a sense.
2: It, it doesn't. And also haven't, hasn't, I'm going to use a word here, miscegenation. Hasn't that been a thing always? Mm-hmm. And isn't racism and anti-Blackness and whatever still here?
0: And you still hear some white parents saying some messed up stuff about what, about their own kids and about Black people. So it's like, just because you have Black children or mixed-race children doesn't mean that you're anti-racist. So, no. No.
2: Um, no. <laughs> But I think so. When I'm thinking about fetishizing, and one historical example that I've, I'm plenty of people have done research about, but I think about too is uh, Sarah Bartman, and that was of course her colonized name. But she was a black woman from West Africa who was stolen. South from Africa. Well, oh. now South Africa, but she oh, a she's a Khoisan. She's oh, Khoisan woman. Oh, okay. So the mm-hmm. our, okay. So what I read says so she's from West. So South Africa um thank you for correcting me for sh- thank you
0: um yeah what is now south africa and she was what is she now? was koi
2: koi i believe yes um if i'm pronouncing that right and she toured. she was toured around europe until her death in 1815 and she was commonly known like when um they would advertise her they would call her hot and venus mm-hmm. and she was part of this freak show quote unquote which gets back to this fetishism, right? Where white people would come and gaze at her body. They would look at her large butt. They would look at her breasts. They would touch her. Um, They would be allowed to touch her genitals. Mm -hmm. And she was a commodity that allowed them, one, to make money. So of course, this is during slavery. So they're making money off of her um, in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. But then also she reinforced their fragility that reinforces kind of ideal body type for them as being this... Um, super thin light skin or very light pale um, body and also entrenched some like fat phobic things into the world um but then also on the other pole dehumanized black women and her brain skeleton and genitals remained on display in paris until 1974 Um, and then her body was returned Mm. to her homeland so it's or the the remains of her body was returned to her homeland. So this continual fetishization of black women and their bodies is rampant throughout history.
0: Yeah. I think that that the way that that continues today is kind of something that you have talked about in previous episodes, just about in your church and the way that, because of the way that you developed as a child, that it caused people to place certain associations or place mm-hmm. these certain ideas about what kind of child mm-hmm. you were, and so again, this is an idea of like imposing your own ideas and um, and values onto certain parts of a person's body.
2: I think it's kind of it's whack. It's all whack, and you know. Me and my therapist Alice, we talk about it (laughs) Um, because fetishization can have harmful effects. And what we see in the academy is, I think, of tokenization as a form of Mm -hmm. fetishization, which um, we will uh, get to that.
0: (laughs) Oh, we (laughs) We show wheels, we show wheels,
2: but you know, I think that we're doing,
0: (laughs) we're here doing something like we're taking steps towards making these changes and, and helping people understand what we're doing is speaking out. And I think mm-hmm. that that brings us to our next segment, what we're reading. So what are we reading today, Brendan? Oh, um,
2: <laughs> oh, we are reading transforming silence into language and in action by Audrey Audre Lord and Audrey my- Lord, Lord. My Girl, I, I, I Love You, um, was a queer Black feminist scholar and poet whose definitions of care for the self and community frame many contemporary conversations, especially about self-care. Um, mm-hmm. She described herself as Black lesbian mother warrior Poet. I just, I love it. <laughs> her essays and her books provide a black feminist political intervention by demonstrating how the personal becomes a site for political transformation. She was a prolific essayist and poet, right? So she wrote. A few books, just a few, you know, mm. Sister Outsider, <laughs> Zami, A New Spelling of My Name, The Cancer Journals, and A Burst of Light, to name some. And an interesting fact, while I was, you know, obsessing about her for this episode, I mean, always, but just especially for this episode, um, she's actually an Aquarius. Yes. I'm so, telling you, we're,
0: we out here. We out here. She's a, a, like, a late
2: Aquarius, <laughs> Pisces cusp. Like a cusp, um, okay. Yeah, she's like... 18, yeah, 18, I, know the, I know the lingo a little bit. Eh, I see you, um, but she left this earthly realm in 1992 uh, and she was 58 when she passed away um, and I believe that the stress of the academy killed her, but... Mm. <sighs> uh,
0: <sighs> yeah, I am you know, as I've been saying on the last two episodes, maybe, I've been reading Sister Outsider and... It has transformed me. I think mm-hmm. that, well, one of the things that I noticed is that I've read a lot of these ideas before without knowing that I was reading her ideas. And you were like, "Yeah, a lot of a lot of people plagiarize her work and then don't comment on it and don't don't cite her nothing." And I was just like, "All right, well, I definitely see that now." So, um, and don't get me wrong, I have read. Um, I have read a couple of her essays before, but, I, you know, reading the whole works was just, it was transformational.
2: I love yeah. it. Yeah, I would say that, like, I mean, it's never too late to discover Audre Lorde, in my opinion. Um, and I feel like, you know, this socialist woman really opened my eyes to understanding what it meant to be, you know, to have a non-normative sexuality, right? She also mm-hmm. was a, like a mother. She had children yeah, and she was, she was such so prideful about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and as academics, I feel like for those of, of us academics who desire to be mothers and are mothers, um, that's a part of our identity we're told we're not supposed to uphold um and be true yeah. and real mm-hmm. academics uh, i do not currently desire to be a mother but i think that will change in the years to come um mm-hmm. we'll i see. think she learned
0: so much from them even mm-hmm. i mean she writes she writes almost this whole essay about about having a son and what it means to be a lesbian feminist who has a son a boy who's going to grow up and become a man and a part of the patriarchy although she hopes that he won't perpetuate it but i i mean i think that there are some really interesting uh, meditations on various things but the essay
2: the essay itself so yes <laughs> it's a five it's
0: like a five or six page essay we should be able to get through this
2: i know and we're just, but we, <laughs> but just we, won't. <laughs> we are honoring you audrey yeah. um thank you for sharing your gift with us so what were like what were some things that really spoke to you? Like, of course, all of it, but like, what were some quotes that like stood out to you from this? Um, So many, where should I start? I think
0: that when she says, what are the words you do not yet have? Mm -hmm. What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence? One, it just... It was, it was so poignant. So she's writing this essay or she's reflecting on when she uh, found out that she might have cancer. And so she's like, I am going to, I'm going to die. And I might not have said the things that I needed to say. And one of the things in, in our first episode that I talked about, which is like the necessity to create language, to communicate our experiences. And that, mm-hmm. that was something that really resonated with people you know, and she talks more about that in, in another essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury. But here, I think that, you know, when she when she talks about these words, you know, when she talks about what are the words you do not yet have, what do you need to say? It really made me sit down and think, like, what language do I not yet have to communicate my experiences? And I mm-hmm. think that that is really the, the goal and the mission of being in academia is to give language, give words, to experiences that haven't been communicated properly
2: mm-hmm. yet. That's yeah, that's beautiful. I I think for me that line hit or it resonates in in ways of speaking to my own personal experiences with like with violence and abuse mm-hmm. and thinking about the tyrannies that I swallow day by day and attempt to mm-hmm. make my own, explain away, say, well maybe I did this, I deserve this. Yeah, I sicken and dive them in silence and like the first time I read this, I was just like, Oh shit. Like my silence, literally all it does is hurt and harm me. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it helps, it helps whoever's hurting me, you know, to continue doing whatever they want to do. But like just the image of like swallowing these tyrannies it, for me, it was just like, wow, like, I, I don't want to do that. Like, how can I spit these, these shits back up? Like, I don't want to do this. No <laughs> more. Um, And then the line that comes after. So when I'm reading this again, like I come back to this essay over and over again, especially when I need to feel empowered to do something. Mm -hmm. Uh, This time, because at this stage of my life, uh, the part that the line that follows after what you just quoted, which she says, perhaps for some of you here today, I am the face of one of your fears because I am woman, because I am black, because I am lesbian, because I am myself a black woman warrior poet doing my work come to ask you, are you doing yours? Whew. I I was like, oh, my chest, like, am <laughs> I doing my work, Audrey? I don't, am I? And and I think about the times where I feel like I'm not, I'm not doing enough. And um, mm-hmm. my friends always tell me that I, I, I actually do too much, but <laughs> I, I think for me, it was like, I need to sit with myself and, and center myself because it's like the tyrannies that I've swallowed have made me feel like I am not capable of doing my own work but I know that mm. there's work that I'm called to do and it's like I've been afraid of of living in that purpose and in that calling uh, I know what it's like to live right. in that fear and in that silence and I've been afraid of speaking my truth for what it would cost me not knowing that swallowing that truth would truly truly like cost mm. me more. yeah, And this is like part of her speech. So this is, she wrote this in reflection of, you know, having cancer, but also this was like a speech at the, um at either the Modern Language Association or where she's, or the National Women's Studies Association. One of the other, I don't know, Alyssa, you'll, I'm sure you'll correct me, but she's- I'm I'm getting in the book. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The Modern Language Association's
0: Lesbian and Literature Panel in 1977 in Chicago.
2: She's like, also speaking to these white women and what I loved about her, she would come to these panels and turn up and be like, y'all thought I was going to talk about this, but here I am. Mm-hmm. and I'm about to turn up on all of y'all. And so she's like, actually, this is something that I I'm reflecting, but I'm also putting to you, like, are you doing your work as a mm-hmm. white woman, as a black woman, as a lesbian, as an et cetera, um, what tyrannies are you swallowing?
0: Right. And she, I mean, she, She didn't coddle white women. Mm -hmm. She did. She absolutely did not coddle them. She wasn't like, okay, we're going to get to a common understanding. She was like, no, actually, what is preventing you from understanding me? I'm not here to understand you. You need to understand this situation. This like you need to understand this world that you've created and think about that. And she really would just put people in her place. And I really appreciated that. I, I really appreciate that about her work. And I think that the, you know, are are you doing yours? So in a later essay, she she kind of reveals that that comes from Malcolm X. It's kind of a paraphrase of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to say that like your your work doesn't mean doing all the work. It doesn't mean doing everything. It doesn't mean that you need to be doing more than other people. It means that you need to be doing what it is that you are called to do. And I think that you know, I think that you're you're getting there. You're you're feeling that. You're like, yes, that's right. I have this particular mission, and Aww. I'm gonna you're gonna do it. I know you are. I was talking about this with another friend. I was like, if there's anybody I know in academia, it's gonna be Brendan who's gonna write that like pivotal paper, essay, book that everybody refers to for the next that she's gonna eat off of for the next forty years.
2: You know. <laughs> That's the hope. That's not these people don't <laughs> kill me first. But anyway, mm, uh, yeah, which but, is you know, <laughs> not here not there. But yeah. thank you so much for for your affirmation. And I feel like she talks about this also getting to that, right? What like what causes us to be silent? And mm-hmm. she she really hones in on it, and it's fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the fear of visibility hmm. and
0: you know, one of the most powerful things that we have is our voice. And um, so, yeah, so she comes to talk about fear of visibility as being the reason that we will silence ourselves, that we will swallow these tyrannies. And then she goes on to talk about the, way, the ways that Black women are simultaneously hyper-visible and is invisible so we're hypervisible because of the ways that we stand out in places we're always errant we're too black in feminist spaces we're too female in black spaces and then at the same time we're invisible and so lord calls this you know we're invisible because of the depersonalization of racism and for me it's a sort of willful blindness this this failure or even refusal to see us as human
1: Mm. Mm. and so
0: i've been listening to the michelle obama podcast and she was talking about how when she was she was literally the first lady of the united states she was in line with another black woman her friend and her children after a soccer game or something they were in line at a cafe and this white woman stepped right in front of her in line Mm. like she didn't see her like she was Wait,
2: and Secret Service didn't go didn't <laughs> intercept. Actually, or I, think they were, I
0: think they were a little bit further back. She and <laughs> and so, you know, how many of us have had that experience where mm-hmm. someone has stepped in front of us and with without a care in the world? And if you did speak out or did you or you did say, uh, excuse me, I was there, they'll be like, Oh sorry, I didn't see you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How many of us would but how many of us would swallow that small tyranny? This tyranny that tells you that they don't see you as a person, but they see you, they just see a black. And so Lord argues that this visibility by speaking out, it makes us vulnerable because our presence is an aberration. As she says, we weren't meant to survive. We're not meant to be mm-hmm. here. And so speaking and making that presence seen or felt or heard can can bring on danger. Being silent doesn't make us less afraid and it doesn't make us safe, actually. And that's like the most important thing that she comes to.
2: Yeah, which is, And it's so true. It's just like your silence does not ensure your safety by any means. Um, And this fear of visibility in a world where she says, quote, racial difference creates constant, if not unspoken, distortion of vision, which you speak to when people being like, oh, I didn't even I can't even see you. I didn't even see you there. Um, Like black women have been simultaneously hyper-visible and then rendered invisible through racism. Black mm-hmm. women were ever present. And she's thinking about these Black women domestic workers who are const- who were in white women's homes, right? Black women were ever present. They were domestic workers in, in white folks' homes, as teachers in their own communities, as breadwinners in their own homes. But often their unique voices and their needs were subsumed under this quote-unquote black struggle for liberation which many people confuse um and are treated as like the black cishet man struggle for whiteness mm-hmm. and white power yeah. or like under this kind of white feminist gender justice movement that requires black women to be silent about the racist violence that white women exact on them mm-hmm. um, so when and that's
0: like meant to be in solidarity with you know us with with womanhood with this common this common womanhood.
2: Yeah. Solidarity requires our silent in yeah. a lot of spaces. Yeah. And so like in this time when white women, you know, second wave feminist movement, when white women were begging to be out of the home and be released from the control of their husbands, right, black women were already working outside of their homes. It was like their due that was their duty. They were actually mm-hmm. working in these white women's homes. Um, and they mm-hmm. They but right so like racism, sexism, homophobia, all these other things, right, occlude differences when we throw people together in categories like black people or women, right? They they kind they hide like the differences that often black women face in these circles. And so blackness renders us as indispensable, which means literally y'all need us to survive. Like what Mm -hmm. is what is a black liberation movement without black women? It don't exist. What is a women's justice movement, women's liberation movement without black women?
0: Yeah, that that was exactly what I was going to say. It's like, while y'all are out becoming CEOs, and I'm talking about white women, while y'all are out doing that, who's looking after your kids? Black and brown women. Especially in New York. I see it every day walking around my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're out here literally putting their lives at risk. During for your children, for your economic progress, for your development, and then y'all don't even see us as human,
2: right? Hmm. And because you don't see us as human, you ask us to risk our lives to come watch yep. your kids, right? It, it's like so you can lean in, quote unquote, and be you know <laughs> reach your potential, but mm-hmm. as black people, as black women, right, we are always rendered as indispensable. Right. We are necessary for the survival of everybody. But then also simultaneously we're seen as excess, which means too Mm -hmm. much. Like you were talking about earlier, like we're hyper visible while at the same time invisible. But they need us anyway. But yeah, this visibility comes with danger. Once I make my voice known, once I speak, I and pushing up against a social order that actually needs me to be silent in order mm-hmm. to exist. Um, but in order for us to live, like we gotta, we gotta speak, um, which we talked about in an earlier episode.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is something that Zorniel Hurston has been quoted as saying, but I searched and searched for the source of it. People said it was in their eyes or watching God, but it's not in there. But she is said to have said that if you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yo, and still I, ooh, like what? I
0: was just like, was just like that's it. That's it. All right, episode <laughs> done. Like, <there's- laughs> but I think that, you know, one of the things that I really took away from this essay is that a life of silence will not compensate for the losses we endure mm. by choking on the things that we have to say. Mm. So even in silence we'll still suffer and we'll still die. And so Audre Lorde really forces us to ask ourselves, if death is the final silence, will I have said all that I needed to say? And so she reminds us to speak our truth and to live our truth while we are still living. And that really like, as, as soon as I saw that, I was just like, oh, Brendan, your incredible essay that just came out in, in Anthro News, How Do We Listen to the Living?, you know you talk about how the voices of black women are really only amplified in death and that we need a transformation a revolution in that in that dynamic and so yeah I, I made that connection between these two things and it was it was fantastic
2: oh thank you for for thinking of me if y'all want to read the essay we'll link it for you uh, um, it's going on the syllabus <laughs> it's going on the syllabus for oh, yeah. sure yeah and i mean i'm like <laughs> I'm not going to go too deep into it. I feel like, you know, if you read it and you have questions, feel free to, you know, shoot us emails. Um, one of the things though, that I do want to highlight in the essay that, um, that I think would be pertinent to this conversation is is me asserting that like Black women and girls, like, we've been talking, right? Mm-hmm. And who hears us, right? Which one of us, which ones of us are heard? And it's typically those with class. Skin color, you know, pretty and thin, privilege who get mm-hmm. hurt, and even then, it's through this distortion of racism that fetishizes, you know, these women and girls, um, and that's the only way that people will be able to hear you. You know, your black ass is like through yeah. this like fetishization of, oh, well, you're this kind of black or you're mm-hmm. this kind of person. But Lord tells us in this essay she says and where the words of women are crying to be heard we must each we must each of us recognize our responsibility to seek those words out to read them and share them and examine them in their pertinence to our lives so in even in this moment she's making a call to be listened to and mm-hmm. to be heard and for us to listen to each other and to take silence and transform it into a type of action that allows us not just to you know, sit around and listen and be heard. Like we're not here to, to tell stories, right? It's 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 to transform the world in which we live, um, and so that point to the political, I think, is also very important.
0: Yeah, I so <laughs> I think that that this really this brings me nicely into this documentary that I said, oh, we should watch this for the podcast, and then I watched it and I was like, actually, nah, don't watch it. <laughs> I was but like, I think, okay. <laughs> So it's it's on Amazon Prime. It's called You Belong to Me, Sex, Race, and Murder in the South. It was It's a documentary from 2014. And the story in itself is very interesting. The documentary, on the other hand, is a little sketchy. So <laughs> in 1952 in Live Oak, Florida, this Black woman, one of the richest Black women in the state at the time, Ruby McCollum, she walked into her white doctor's office and shot him four times in the back. So... In this documentary, you know they're calling it an unsilencing. They want to tell tell this story, tell Ruby's story, um, because you know there's there's a debate about why she did it, and it's a it's actually a story that continues to resonate in Live Oak today. People still kind of feel like the weight of it, and so they speak to a lot of people, her family, her friends, descendants of some of the like major characters, we'll say, and even a juror who was on the jury. Um, During her trial, but the thing that I wanted to say, the thing that that I think really resonates with our topic today, is actually something Zora Neale Hurston wrote about the about the case. She said that the truth of this case lies on the other side of silence. Mm. So that brings us to our final segment. What in the world? Like what? What the world? What in the world? So (laughs) it's back to school. So we had to do a little back to school something. So we're going to be talking about the Harvard scandal. Is that what we're going to call it?
2: (laughs) Harvard scandal. Um, And if you're not an anthropologist, it's probably not too much of a scandal.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually not a scandal because it's something that is rife in so many institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, But so, you know, so we're going to be talking about a little bit about Harvard, but really we're getting into whisper networks um, and how that works for women and specifically black women. So you are not an anthropologist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In May, just as these uprisings were kicking off around anti-black police violence, the Harvard Crimson published an article exposing numerous allegations of sexual harassment against three male faculty members and so I think that given the timing, it was hard for me to really give my attention to that. Um, yeah. But you know, we did agree that we wanted to talk about it eventually on the podcast. Um, and so in August, another article in the Chronicle of Higher Education came out. And so we're not we're not going to be speaking about these allegations, but rather how women and especially Black women navigate these institutions, and not just academic institutions where sexual harassment and gaslighting and minimizing about that harassment are just super commonplace, that they go unspoken, that that, that like, it just goes unspoken.
2: Right, and part of what sustains these things are the like, tokenization and fetishization of Black women in these spaces, and so to give two seconds to the current moment that we're in, in which white women have been impersonating Mm-hmm. Black women, right, and that's allowed through the fetishization of certain characteristics um, for light-skinned mm-hmm. black women, right, and also the tokenization of black people in spaces. So there's so few of us in academic spaces that um, we do feel the need to like fight for these spaces, and then they're typically given to those who are tokenized and fetishized in certain ways. We we really, I mean, the world knew that we needed <laughs> to talk about this. Yeah, that's what we do.
0: That's what Mm -hmm. we're here for. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so with that said, we are excited to introduce our first ever guest on Zora's Daughters, Christelle Olukoi. Christelle Olukoi is a PhD student in African Studies and Anthropology at Harvard University. She holds an MA in Geography from the University Paris 1, Panthéon-Sorbonne, and is an alumni of the École Normale Supérieure of Paris. Her research deals with imaginations of the night in post-colonial Lagos. Through archival work and sonic ethnography, she explores in particular the legacies of colonial imaginations of nighttime in shaping the nights of Lagosians today. Welcome to the Zoom studio, Christelle. (laughs) Tell us, where are
1: you Zooming in from today? Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to be with you all. I've long admired this podcast, so I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I'm speaking from Lagos, um, Nigeria. Okay. Awesome. Excellent.
2: Well, you know, I'm a big fan of you, so yes. <laughs> and, um, y'all can't see Christelle today, but she has on this beautiful yellow. Like, it's looking resplendent, and her smile. <laughs> i just so happy to have you here. Um, yeah. yeah. So thank you. Yeah, it is. It is
0: bringing me joy. Thanks for being here. Um, so to get started, we are actually planning on calling this episode the Whispering Gallery. But sometimes I get these little like little pockets of inspiration, and then I change the title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but a Whispering Gallery is basically a phenomenon where, in a circular enclosure, enclosure whispers from one area can be heard in other parts of that same enclosure. So it's kind of this cool phenomenon. There's one in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, there's one in Grand Central Station in New York, it happens in caves and stuff like that. So in any case, I wanted that title to kind of index the way that in these very tight-knit rarefied spaces of the university or in other institutions, the only way that we often learn about sexual harassments, who to avoid and things like that is through whisper networks. And Christelle, you made such an acute observation on Twitter. I mean, the whole thread was brilliant. Thank you. But you wrote that we've normalized tenured professors whispering while writing about speaking truth to power. Whew. And that is, mm-hmm. <laughs> those are facts. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about that thread and like the politics of these whisper networks?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so the context of that thread was, um, so there, were, there was an article about my school uh, my department, the anthropology department at Harvard and three professors were being accused of sexual, um, harassment. And talking with, uh, peers and classmates about this whole situation, um, a lot of us spoke about the whisper network and all, and how, like, we've been exchanging knowledge between ourselves throughout the years to protect our, ourselves, but also how, like, sometimes like tenured professors or like other kinds of professors will also share that kind of knowledge with us. And then it will circulate among mm-hmm. students. And for me, whispering is a function of a specific relation of power. And mm-hmm. I think it's, it is an important tool uh, in a context as hierarchical as academia to be able to whisper as a first step to be able to make known uh, instances of harm but then I find it a bit surprising and a bit defeating also when people who are at what we consider the top of the academic food chain also say mm-hmm. that the only thing they can do in those instances is whisper. Mm. Right. And then I also, I feel like it's not, it's for me, the, the whole whispering thing, it feeds into this academic culture of um always putting forth this idea of powerlessness, which is real, Mm -hmm. but at some point we need to ask ourselves why people who are the most precarious in in academia, such as graduate students or adjunct professors, are willing to take risks, are willing not to be silent about instances of harm, but people who are as powerful as tenured professors decide that the only things they can do is whisper. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I
0: think that this need, this at least this apparent need to whisper makes it seem like there isn't anything that can be done. It's just but there is there is something that can be done to change the fact that these situations of harassment are happening and that they don't need to happen. Exactly. I, but I don't know who knows what it is that is preventing people from from doing something
2: when you like you you i don't know if you coined this phrase but i'm gonna i'm gonna attribute it to you <laughs> um, Christelle. um the performance of powerlessness and that is like right mm. in the academy is particularly along i think among like black tenured professors who are like you know yeah it was a struggle for you to climb to get to where you're at you've had to endure a lot of violence but your tenure, tenured, which means you have a, a, a set of security that, like you mentioned, adjunct professors and uh, graduate students don't have, but then it's kind of this performance that they, I think, attribute somewhat to like their blackness where they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm black and things are never really secure. And it's like, but aren't you a full professor with an endowed chair mm-hmm. and a, <laughs> you know, this, that, and the third, like, you know, and I'm telling you that this person said these racist things or did this like harm to me and you turn and say, well, I'm well, one response is, well, that's what you have to deal with in the Academy, which I've heard. Right. Or Mm -hmm. like, well, I don't know. There's nothing I can really do for you right in this moment. And I think that they perform that powerlessness uh, to avoid accountability for their own actions, like their own harmful actions. So to say like, Oh well, I don't want to take the responsibility of actually intervening on your behalf because that means that when I have to face that non-black colleague in faculty meetings, we have to deal with this issue. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to—I don't want to add that to my list of things, to my own list of struggles as a black person in this department uh, to deal with. So I, I offer that as like potentially one reason, but I like what you said. You know, just. Just say so you don't care enough to take a significant risk, right? Like we being black, but right, we all have risks when we are when we choose to speak up and not be silent in spaces. But some of us are more protected than others. And so it's it is a matter of of care. And I think you you choose that word and it's like it's actually really good. Like it's thinking about care and like what it in these networks That you say display power relations, but also I think among graduate students and other precarious folks in the academy is is a, is a network of care in a sense.
1: Yeah. I think, um, something, I think the, like, the idea of a whisper network is really a double edged sword for me. Mm -hmm. And I like, I like how you, like, go back to that question of care. Because I think it comes from a place of care. At least that's how I've encountered it, especially from peers, where it is about protecting ourselves. But then sometimes I also feel like there is a specific kind of pleasure Mm. about like the pleasure of gossiping and the pleasure of circulating certain kinds of knowledge within Mm. academia, within academia. And I've not necessarily perceived that pleasure from, um, peers, but from people who like have much more power, mm-hmm. but who are going to share that knowledge in a way where you don't feel like they're saying that to protect you, but more as a way to like, this is a kind of socialization into a discipline, sharing mm-hmm. those kind of knowledge. And that's where I feel like whispering can become sort of counter counter-revolutionary or like preventing harm to be to be changed in any way. It's more about the pleasure of sharing and creating a sense of belonging through that sharing of forbidden forms of knowledge than about actually caring about the person who's sharing that knowledge mm-hmm. with and actually feeling committed to protecting that person. Mm. Um, yeah. That's interesting. And I also, I also feel like it's in that second instance of, um, whispering more as gossips and as protective, uh, network. It reminds me of, um, Nick Mitchell has an article, uh, which I think is the best article that was ever written on academia ever, um, which is called Summertime Selves. And in that article, they talk about how like they talk about what they call like the accumulation of non-tragedies and how whispering and talking about one's experiences does that. Mm. So you feel that what happened to you was something significant, but through sharing and circulating that knowledge and realizing that there's so much routinized harm happening, mm. it's almost as if there's some kind of normalization of harm within academia because mm. there's so many, like just the amount of stories it's almost become as if the, um, the share amount because it's only about sharing becomes also, also f- makes you feel a bit powerless mm. if it's only about sharing.
0: Right. It's like you are basically being initiated into a club. If, I mean, if you're talking about this pleasure of sharing knowledge or of sh- it's not even, it's not even knowledge. It's like just sharing information. Then it's, yeah. it's like they're contributing to this initiation into this, into this club which a lot of what academia is these like everyday experiences is like it is people say that grad school is like hazing and hazing means that you're being initiated into some kind of group or club and this is all a part of the experience and yeah i think brennan what you also what you were saying earlier I, i found really interesting and it made me think of part of the problem being this hierarchy and um the way that the university has been kind of like broken up into the the administrative and then the intellectual labor and all these kinds of things and this splitting up and then hierarchization, I guess we can say, it allows a lot of people in the academy to kind of shirk responsibility and accountability. They can just kind Mm -hmm. of be like, well, this actually isn't my problem, this is someone else's problem and you need to go You need to go see this person and you need to go talk to this person.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like kind of this like institutionalization, I guess, or whatever, or bureaucrat- making a bureaucracy of, of mm-hmm. the whole issue. And so like when I've had experiences of harm in the academy and it's like, you tell the person you think you're supposed to tell and they're like, oh, go to this other person and they're supposed to help you. And they're like, well, actually, that's not really my job. You need to talk to so-and-so and And then by the time you like as a graduate student you're TAing you're trying to work on your own work you are trying to have a life outside of wherever you're at school you're exhausted running around to all these people and kind of what you were saying Christelle about um about then you learn just like how especially at our institution Alyssa like Mm -hmm. you learn how normal it is for people to experience violation and you're like oh I'm just one of the many uh, who have experienced this and I like when I was told in one instance like if you I mean you could put in a report but it'll you will graduate before you will be seen about it that's Hmm. how many reports there are yeah
0: I mean somebody tweeted the other day that more students have been suspended for not social distancing than have ever been uh, suspended or expelled for sexual harassment. And that is mm-hmm. crazy. That's absolutely crazy. But I mean, also on the note of, see, I'm jumping all around. This is what happens. Um, mm-hmm. On the note of like initiating, one of the things that I found striking in the Chronicle article that recently came out is that there are these boys' clubs, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I mean, it's not just in the article. We know of this happening even in our institution, Brendan. But there are these boy clubs where male professors and graduate students, they all go for drinks or they organize reading groups. And all of that amounts to this kind of informal networking. And then as women, Black people, disabled folks, queer and trans folks, we have these whisper networks, which aren't just about sexual harassment. They're also about like, which professors are anti-Black, who Mm -hmm. is transphobic and all of these other kinds of things. So for men, their informal networks put them at a professional advantage, and for us, our informal networks are about keeping us safe. And it's this like completely mm-hmm. unacknowledged cishet male privilege in the academy and beyond, not just the academy, in, in other institutions as well. That, you know, I think is, frankly, it pisses me
2: off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what else? This yeah. is so true. It's so real. This and is so true. Like yeah. when, when I heard about one of the boys clubs, I was just like, wait a minute, like, what about me? You know, then I realized, Mm -hmm. I'm like, do I want to sit in a room with these people? No, I don't. (laughs) But I think like the Academy is, is literally just like, you have to know the right person at the right time to get access to certain things, or to be heard, or to feel like your voice is valued, um, or to get certain opportunities. And I think about, as I enter into my fourth year, like these opportunities that I was not privy to as a first generation
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: student, right. That did not know that, Hey, I got to tap into all these different networks. um, Besides the one that I feel like most black women, we already know when we we show up, we need to get connected with all the other black women. (laughs) So we could really know what's going on. But even then, it's like you have to be careful about who you let in your circle because not all skin folk mm-hmm. are kin folk. And it's like not all of not all of us really look out for each other and really have a politics of care. So I, I think yeah. getting back to what you're saying, Christelle, like there are there are some people who wanna chit chat, you know, wanna chop it up with you because they like doing it. And they're going to say, oh, you know, so-and-so, she she ain't shit. She do this, she do that, this, that, and a third, whatever. But they actually are really not willing to take that risk to change anything, even if they have the power to do mm-hmm. so, so much more about just, like, the, the pleasure of the conversation or, or I think even a power of, like, power relationship of just, like, I am the holder of this secret top-notch knowledge and oh my gosh i'm about to bestow Mm -hmm. this upon you and aren't you so glad that like i trust you enough quote unquote to like tell you this information and and now you must reveal to me all of your secrets that will pop up somehow in the end of the year review in some way so like um not that that's happened to me i'm just imagining a situation but yeah Yeah. like Mm -hmm. you know that is that is the thing that happens. And I think you you just like said it so, so well, but I think about like all the opportunities that we miss out on as black women because we're not a part of these circles. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talked about that in your threat, Chriselle, as well. Like who is excluded from these networks?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think something like I love in what you just said, Brendan, was when you were like, do I even want to sit in this room? <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like w- when we start asking ourselves this question, I feel like, like, I feel like something shifts in how we can react to those situations. And like, I found a lot of, I don't think it's comfort or like s- self-groundedness in knowing like what I can accept and what I cannot accept. And like also the wounds in which I don't want mm-hmm. to be part of. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that the problem is like it's not that we don't have a seat at the table, it's that there's not that it's that there's a table at all.
1: Exactly. And it's also that idea that you can make it into the table and play the game without even realizing that you're the one being played. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes at the expense of the people that like you pretend you're representing or like you're speaking for in some ways.
0: Yeah. Oh, I was just going to Say this, this is actually something that we were going to talk about, but it's like Brendan said once before, you know, that she was surprised that there aren't more senior scholars who don't invest more in mentoring and, and, you know, all of those things. And that when she gets to that, or if she gets to that point, and I believe you will, um, that, you know, she wants to focus on building a community of folks who are coming up. And it dawned on me that this need to stay relevant, particularly at the expense of upcoming scholars, is based a lot in ego so like older generations will be like oh millennials and gen z they're so spoiled They, they demand so much than we ever did or tenured professors would be like you know you should just be happy that you get any funding there was no funding when I was in graduate school and it's like why aren't you proud to have paved the way so that we can have more than you did you know instead of telling us that we haven't paid our dues
1: no, it's just this, like, those kind of questions always amaze me because why would you, like, why do, you, sorry, why would you ever wish less on someone? Like, this idea that students today are like whiny or like, are asking for too much are just mm-hmm. a bit weird to me. Not, not just because like the material conditions in which we exist right now are so radically different from those in which they existed, like, mm-hmm the situation of the job market has nothing to do with what they faced so like we can't really say that we are having it easier in some ways but also like they should be proud that like we are asking more and we're trying to transform
2: things Mm -hmm.
1: and like they shouldn't want us to be like asking less
2: yeah and I I think it's it goes back to certain ways that we've internalized like capitalist thinking and that this can only mm-hmm. be some people at the top, like it's a zero sum yep. yep. game. And if I'm at the top then I have to stay at the top, even if I am, you know, 66 and I got it, you know, I made in the shade, got my tenureship, got my health insurance and, you know, I could, you know, basically build up other people's careers who are are starting out. Um, And 66 is a random age, y'all. I don't don't (laughs) know anybody who's 66. I didn't put that out there before someone starts researching and being like, who are you talking about? Um, I'm not talking about anybody. But just thinking, even with my own experiences with other Black women scholars who are well-established and who are just like, I've seen on Twitter, like that whole Black in the Ivory
0: Mm, the situation
2: where you know it's like she as a tenure professor was just like i'm gonna take ownership of this thing um and completely cut the the grad student out of it cut joy out of it um Mm -hmm. and it's just like that's you know it could have been an opportunity where both of you came up together it's not like the world has finite resources that's what we're told that's what we're taught. But that's not the truth. Um, and I don't know. I see it too, Tristella, and similarly just thinking about like this to me is so much more when you can actually make it a community effort. It feels so much more meaningful to be like, oh, I have a legacy where there are young, especially I'm, I'm like young folks of color behind me who are, who are saying that they mm-hmm. step on my shoulders and do more work, do better work. I'm not trying to do this all like which <laughs> I'm tired. Like, yeah, I'm not trying to do all this shit. Like, I I would like to be able to rest. Like, you know. Um, but there are some people who who don't see things that way, and I'm learning. Like, academia kind of weeds out the people who believe in that kind of community mindset, even through the virtue of just like you need to publish this, this, and this. You need to like publish all these and be first author and have a book and speak this many times and, you know, have this many mm-hmm. students that you're mentoring. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, a culture that breeds this kind of competition mentality. Um, but we try to like break that apart in our, in yes. our circles. Um, Cause it's, it's like, there's, there's so much work to be done. There's no limit to the amount of work that needs to be done in, in the world for liberation. And so there's no reason why any of us need to monopolize that. Like,
1: Yeah, and like talking with like a close friend of mine uh in my program, Miriam, we just realized like just the like severe lack of mentoring Mm. that happens for women of color and black women in grad school, like I can't really say I've been mentored at all uh in my program. And we just realized the extent to which the mentoring work is actually like your peers who are doing Mm. it, who are giving you feedback on everything you do. Like your peers were also your, like your, like your kin politically and not just like your peers as the people who are in your program because I think this this distinction is important. One of the things that gives me a little bit of hope is that I do think that our generation is building Like the kinds of communities we would like to see in academia. Mm -hmm. And it's also like proving that another way of organizing ourselves, another way of relating to ourselves is possible. So I'm glad for that.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's what we're doing here on this podcast. Actually, I mean someone did point that out. Yes. You know, on Twitter (laughs) she was just like, This, you know, I listening to this, it just reminds me of the camaraderie that I had with my cohort and you know, building, you know, creating these kinds of networks. And so Yes. As Brendan said last week, yes. this is, we are transforming and we are creating the change that we wish to see. Now that's what, not, that's not what you no. said. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I, you know, I believe, I'm paraphrasing a paraphrase. You
2: know, I, I mean, I'll take credit for that too. Who knows? Obama, <laughs> Obama got it from me that, uh, who the Obama? Martin Mandela? Luther King. <laughs> Mandela? One <of> them they- <laughs> oh wait, was it, um, <laughs> they got it was from it me.
0: Got Ooh, no, Benjamin I don't know. Ga- Oh, already. Okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I want, I wanted to go back to Brennan, what you were saying um, before about like also what goes into these networks. You know, you said not all skin folk are kin folk. Right. And so trust is a huge factor. Who do you trust? Mm-hmm. Right. To share this information with. I know that I was fortunate enough to be told to avoid Um, or a certain person at our institution. And I think for the person who did that, they, uh, really had to, you know, weigh keeping me safe with being labeled a gossip, which is like an obviously gendered insult, but also having their future prospects curtailed. So there, there is, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. For now. For me, I'm just like, when I choose to disclose people and to people, I'm like, oh, I'm never going to tell you something that I don't want to come back to me. Um, So that that's the thought I have in that. But I'm also just like, and it has come back to me in some ways. Some things I tell do come back to me and do, you know, it does have an effect on my life in some ways. But for me, I was it a lie. It was the truth. (laughs) It's never a lie, though. I'm, it's never I'm, the lie. Exactly. I've never lied. <laughs> some people just don't like to hear the truth mirrored to them in certain ways, but it's never a lie. But for me, it's just like, I wish that someone would have done the same for me because some of the harm that I... Right. Most of the harm that I experienced in graduate school was preventable. Mm-hmm. and hmm like, And these instances same. of harm and harassment... Same it's like if someone had just said something to me like, Oh, Hey, this professor, mm, not the one, um, this student in this case, I don't know. I I used to have a stalker. I used to have a stalker in graduate school. Uh, I'm not afraid to say this because he knows who he is. And like, if someone had told me that this man had those kinds of sensibilities, I would not have experienced the harm that I experienced. Um, and so it's just like, but people sit in silence because they think that protects them. They also don't think about, you know, these networks of care and um, yeah. community. And, and it's like, no, I, I don't want, I don't believe that people should struggle. I believe that there's a way that I can make sure that you don't struggle. I'm going to help you not do that, especially if you're a Black person, if you're a Black queer person, if you're a Black trans person, a Black woman. Like, I'm, I'm going to be like, look, let me help you out so that you don't have to go through hard shit because life is hard enough um, so uh, that's kind of my politic around it i don't have no fancy way to say it but it's just like i just i don't have mm, i don't got time for that anybody got time for that
1: yeah I am same like everything i know about people who cause harm i would tell to everyone who's in position to be harmed by that person because i don't think it's like i don't think it's the kind of knowledge that that's mine to keep if that makes mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. and like something, like one of the reasons why also I'm very hesitant with this whole whisper network thing is like the ways in which, as we said, Vandal, it leaves a lot of people outside of it. As like a black woman and also as an international student, like the, there was, like nobody ever told me. They said they couldn't do that to me. And I think it's, the, it's a kind of like misogynoir that often works mm. against black women, mm-hmm. the idea that either they're like not a type uh aesthetically of the abusers which is like so racist mm-hmm. or the idea that they are like so strong-willed which has been said to me that like people cannot see them in like a position as victims which is also very mm-hmm. yeah. wrong mm-hmm. and does harm in so many ways mm-hmm. to black women
2: yeah this, this refusal to to see us as human beings to see us in our vulnerability that is Actually, literally a historical fact, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, especially, yeah. especially in colonized countries in which Black people live, like Black women have, and in, like inhabited this position of vulnerability that is at once erased, but also very well, much so, like assumed, you know. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, first of all, I'm so sorry that you heard that. I heard something similar upon entering graduate school about you know, being like, okay, you're safe because they don't, they don't like you anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I had not had any experiences with professors and harassment um, in, in that kind of way, I feel like that you said, like that's a certain kind of massage noir that is perpetuated because if something were to happen to me, it would be instantly be unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and so Exactly. And it's just like, or inconceivable, like, like, why you? You know, Um, and it's like it's it's not about the way that I look, it's about being in in positions of power and being able to exact this kind of violence with impunity, which is like what happens in these boys clubs and these like these networks, right, of powers and because this is like the academy and how it works in university and how it works with tenures, like, it's a position of power. Um, They can't really take you out of it uh, but yeah, that's, I think I tweeted that the black and ivory, uh, upon entering, I was told that I was safe from sexual harassment because I was a black woman and it was told to me by like other black women. And so I understood for them what mm-hmm. they were saying, right? Like I understood, like, they're saying like, okay, you know what other people might face as far as sexual harassment. You don't have to worry about that with these particular professors here. Like in a sense, it was kind of like, you're safe. Quote unquote, here, but that safety is couched and it's kind of like massage noir. Like, it's like, okay, people aren't gonna look at me as this type of object because of how I look. I I also want to say that
0: none of us are saying that we want to be sexually harassed. Oh, (laughs) no. Oh, no. Just, just like, point that out in case anybody listens and they're just like, hang
1: on, so...
2: We get some emails, so we just (laughs) got to make sure. Um, But
1: It's it's also about the fact that Black women do get harassed and those kind of ideas Mm -hmm. about... attraction, attractivity, and black women also makes it so much more difficult for black women to come forward or other marginalized positions when they do get harassed. Because harassment mm-hmm. is, as you said, Bernadine, it's a question of power. And it's also about who can you harass and get away with it? Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. That's how yeah. people proceed and and like try to like, groom potential victims. 100%. And black women in the academy are in a specifically vulnerable position.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about this and we could talk to you, Christelle, forever. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for inviting me. It was lovely. Thanks for, thanks for being here with us. Um, all right. Can you, do you want to tell everyone where they can, where they can find you? Uh, you
1: can find me on Twitter at, um, underscore Onikoyi, O-N-I-K-O-Y-I. And also, uh, I'm part of this group, uh, this like building communities of Black students, um, radical Black students in anthropology. Brendan is also part of it. Uh, BRA, Black Radical Anthos. Um So there's a website if you want to join. And it's about creating an alternative community that's not just based on like the fact of being Black, but also about the fact of being actually committed To black liberation and to
2: a different kind of anthropology, and we talk about astrology a lot,
1: (laughs) which is that's
2: more my contribution. Is being like, huh? Tell me who you are. (laughs) 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 So, with all of this wonderfulness, I'm just feeling so full. Thank you so much, Krista, for joining us, Um, and thank you all for listening. If you heard something today that made you laugh or helped you rethink something or made you question yourself or the world around you, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and let everyone know that you love The Daughters. The Daughters.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, I just made that up. (laughs) And if you'd like to follow us on social media, start a conversation about this episode or send us ideas for future episodes, you can find us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zoras underscore Daughters on Twitter. Head to Zora'sDaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes, our bios, contact info, and ways to support the podcast.
2: And until next time, I want to remind you all that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Always. Bye. 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 Welcome to Atlanta where the plays play and we ride in the things like every day. Big beats, big streets, big gangsters rolling. And parties don't stop till eight, 8 in m- the morning. Eight in the morning. Eight, 8 in the morning. Okay. Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs>